This is the Investor Frame Podcast with me, Paul Sparks. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Investor Frame Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Sparks. And on this show, we ask real estate investors and entrepreneurs to share their story so we can all learn from their experiences and get closer to the things that we want in life. Today, I'm here with uh, uh, a new friend, Tyler Vinsan. He's someone I've met through Collective Genius. Um, when I met Tyler the first time, he had won a belt at uh, CG, and you know he was presenting on his creative finance strategies where he does seller finance. Um, Tyler comes from a pretty a technical background. He's got a master's in accounting. He worked for one of the big four companies and then just realized like, this ain't it. I need to figure out how to get you know closer to what I actually want. So uh, I'm, I'm extremely excited to have him here in here to share his story. He's acquired over 70 rental units, majority of which he's bought with no money down on creative finance strategies. So looking forward to having him share his story and uh, welcome in Tyler. It's great to have you. Thanks, Paul. Awesome to be here. Yeah, really looking forward to this. Awesome, man. Well, let's kick it off with a six word update. Um, and for those who aren't familiar with this, this is a way to get our guests to share what's on their minds in terms of either their personal life, their business, or, or their investments in six words or less. So, Tyler, what is your six word update today? Measure the gain, not the gap. So, mm. we're in a uh, obviously in a tough market here. Uh, you know, business has slowed, I think, across the board for a lot of people. Uh, I know we're feeling it, but, you know, like a lot of like-minded entrepreneurs, right? We have these big goals and we, we run into these uh, rough patches where maybe we feel like we're set back and it's easy to measure that gap between where we are today and where we want to be. Uh, mm. Also, it just creates a lot of stress, but you know, taking a look back and measuring the gain from where we were a year ago, two years ago, five years ago, right? Um, produces a lot of gratitude and just a lot more happiness. So that's what's been going on in my world more now than recently, than ever before. That's great. We heard uh, Jimmy Vreeland speak on that last time uh, we were both at CGN. I think it was in October. Um, is, is that a Ben Hardy book? Yeah, yeah. That's right. Ben That's Hardy, right. Dan Sullivan. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's great. I've got it on my shelf. I've thumbed through it a little bit. I, I need to pick that one up. But um, well, tell me a little bit about your background because, you know, I think you have a lot in common with the people that are listening to, to this. There's a lot of folks who have, you know, done, you know, done well for themselves. They, you know, this very like, uh, uh, predictable path, right? We go to college, then you get a master's degree. And then it's like, you've got your life sort of laid out for you. So talk to me about that. Talk to me about that process of when you realize, I don't know if this is something I can do for the rest of my life. Yeah, I, I was I was raised super traditionally and, you know, no slights to my parents. I love them to death and I had a phenomenal upbringing. Um, but I, I was raised, you know, get good grades in school. And, and there was so much pressure put on that, right? Like you had to get the 4.0 because if you, didn't, you, if you didn't get the 4.0, then you're not going to a great school. If you're not going to a great college then you're not getting a great job, right? So that's how I came up, you know, getting good grades in, in high school meant everything. Going to a good college meant everything. So I, you know, I went to the College of William and Mary, you know, the buck didn't stop there. So I had to continue to push myself to get phenomenal grades. Uh, ultimately to, and then I, you know, went on to, uh, grad school there, um, landed a job as an auditor at a, at a big four accounting firm. And I went on to get my CPA license as well. And, you know, at that point, like, it's like, man, I did all this work. Like everything is set. Like it just like I was supposed to do. Well, I'd say like a year into the job, man, you know, is when I discovered real estate investing and it, it almost spoke 
like exactly what I was feeling in my soul, like, like hearing about financial freedom and hearing that the results that you would, you attain are in direct proportion of, of the effort you, you put out and the, the things that you learn. Right. So I, my biggest issue in the corporate world that I had anyway, was I felt like there was a glass ceiling over my head, no matter how hard I worked, no matter how much I learned, like, yes, there's promotions there, but it didn't grow in proportion to the work that I was putting in. So what I did at that time is every single day before work, I'd get up at 4.30 and I was listening to podcasts. I was reading books, going to the gym and I've got bigger pockets in my earbuds playing all the time. You know, I get off work, my commute home, I'm listening to podcasts, audio books and staying up late reading, reading books and, and uh, building relationships as well. Finally, this was uh, probably a year and a half into starting my accounting career. I met I met at the time, he was a 19-year-old wholesaling here in Virginia Beach. And he was like making a killing. One of my buddies from college told me about him. And he was like, man, do you remember Will? And I was like, it's like, yeah, he was like, dude, he's he's killing it. Like right there in Virginia Beach where you are in real estate. So I, you know, I messaged him and, uh, you know, met up with him. And this was in November. So for those of you who aren't familiar with auditing, right, I audited a, uh, a large public company. So from January 1st, like basically when the books closed till financial statements are issued, which was like February, and then another client through April, we're working 80 to hundred hours a week. So mm-hmm. I met him in November, kind of audited his books. And I was like, I saw it was legit. And I told him, I said, look, let me get through this busy season. As soon as I get through, I'll put in my two weeks on April 15th and I'll come work for you starting May 1st. And that's exactly what I did. And, and, uh, worked for him for a year. And then I started up my own operation from there. Man. Well, what I love that I love about what you did is, you know, you built that side hustle while you were still working, right? You're learning, you're engaging. And at a certain point, it's like, okay, let's go for it. You know, we've got enough, we've got enough background at a certain point, you've got to go engage um, and take that first step. And so how did that transition go? And, And you, you did something that I think it's hard for a lot of, you know, visionaries, which is to go work for somebody else, right? So what was that process like? There's a huge stigma. And I I think, I think it's almost even looked down upon to go work for somebody else, especially, I mean, like, you know, not, not to toot my own horn or whatever, but right. I went through, I went through undergrad. I went through graduate school. I got my CPA license. I got this big fancy job and I got my CPA, you know, my CPA license and I'm quitting and leaving all of it behind to go work for a 19 year old with a startup that he had. Like (laughs) talk about, you know, parents being disappointed, right? Like I was the butt of all my friends' jokes. I, for me, it just didn't matter though. So uh, I viewed it as I have two options, right? I can I can go work for this kid and and help him hit his goals. That that is what I ended up doing. I uh, you know I worked for him doing just as an acquisitions manager for about eight months, and I did very well. Um, blew his goals out of the water for him. He ended up moving to California to start an artificial intelligence business and promoted me to COO of the business. And uh, it went well for a few months and he ultimately just decided, he's like, man, you, I, I, I think I'm robbing you of your potential. Like, you, I think you need to start your own thing. So he kind of kicked me out of it. But um, my other option was to try to just start on my own. And, and Paul, to be totally transparent, I didn't know the first thing about anything uh, when it came to real estate investing and wholesaling. I read a lot of books. I talked to a lot of people and that stuff was great, but I didn't have the guidance that I needed. So I honestly, I think if I would have dove in head first and just started my own operation from the get-go, I think I would have, I probably would have been done after a month or two, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. 
Man, that reminds me of my first year in business, which is just like you just get kicked in the shin left and right. And, you know, you because they don't because investing in real estate is very different than running a real estate investing business. These are two completely different things, you know, buying deals versus like, I mean, I, I know a little bit about your business now, right? You've got lead managers and acquisitions managers and a dispo side, and you've got training and onboarding and all this stuff. And what you realize is that's completely different than just picking up some, some deals here and there. Right. Um, so, so tell me a little bit about what the business looks like today. So today um, it's pretty simple. All lead generation is, is almost exclusively SMS at this point, it's SMS and relationships, but it, the, the vast majority comes from SMS uh, that trickles down to a team of lead managers, which for those of you who aren't familiar with how lead management works, they simply take a what we call, you know, just a gross lead or a lead, uh, which is someone that raised their hand and expressed interest in selling. And we qualify them. You know, we we confirm the phone number is correct, confirm they have a property to sell, gather price, timeline, condition, motivation, any other decision makers, any roadblocks, set the appointment and get them to commit to making a yes or no decision on that appointment. That's lead management's role. Uh, and then I've got two acquisition managers. And then I do a little bit of acquisitions myself as well now. Um, and then I'm also based in, in Virginia beach, Virginia. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the, that's what the wholesaling operation looks like. As you mentioned earlier, I have, uh, over 70 units, rental units, um, that I own. And actually we just locked up a pretty good one today, a, a 13 package deal seller. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Seller financed, no down payment. Um, maybe we can unpack that one a little bit later, but yeah, so I've got a pretty good size rental portfolio too. That's split between central Arkansas. So like the little rock at MSA and then my market here in, in Virginia. That's great. And so one of the things that we talk a lot about on this show is the concept of the solvable problem. And one of the things that I think plagues entrepreneurs and, and business owners in general Real estate investors are no, you know, are, are not exempt from that. Is this concept of just chasing more and more and more? You know, it's um, it's an endless loop, as we know. And so, a lot of us we start acquiring rentals because we're using it for passive income and different things like this. And so, I'd like for you to tell me a little bit more about how you think about your solvable problem and how your business and your rentals and all these things function to help you get closer to that. Yeah. First off, I want to raise my hand and say I was absolutely guilty of the uh, the more, not necessarily closer, especially my first year or two in business. Um, absolutely. But so my my solve pro- my solvable problem, Paul, is actually pretty similar to yours. So you mentioned that you want to play business as a sport, right? And I I want my business, you know, me working on and in the business to be an option, not an obligation. Ultimately, what that boils down to, you know, I set out like a a success criteria that I look at at the beginning and end of every single day. Very first question that I, or very first piece of this criteria that I look at is, I can wake up every day and ask, what would I like to do today? Second Mm -hmm. piece of that is my passive income exceeds my lifestyle needs. So for me to not have to worry and to give my wife and I the the lifestyle that we want, that boils down to about $20,000 a month in in passive income. Third piece of the criteria is that I can live anywhere in the world that I choose. So um, we're actually in the process of listing our our primary residence right now. And we're going to be living like a nomad life, hopping from furnished rental to furnished rental in in different cities around the country. 
the fourth piece of my criteria is that I want to work on projects that excite me. I don't want to be working on projects that drain me or I don't get a lot out of. I can disappear for several months with no effect on my income. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to have to be called upon for every single fire drill that comes up, right? Like I would like to have personnel in those seats to handle those, those problems that may present themselves. And then I'm as I'm there as an outlet if needed, but not required. Mm. Um, I, I want to wear a watch for curiosity only. I don't want any time obligations or, or deadlines or anything like that. And then finally I have, I can quit anytime. I love it, man. Why, why do you think that? Because I love how clear you are in that. Um, what do you think it is that, uh, why do you think it's hard for some people to like define ahead of time what it is they want? Let's start there. Cause the next question I want to ask you is like, well, what's the, what's, you know, because you told me at the beginning, like you got caught in this trap of chasing more and more and more. Why do you think that is? Why do you think people get caught in that trap? They measure the gap. They yeah. measure the gap and that always moves. So, so Paul, at, at one point, you probably had a goal of, of making $100,000 a year. Well, you hit that and you probably weren't content, right? 100,000 quickly became 200. When you hit 200, it, it, it became half a million, right? And that, that goal constantly moves because it's in our nature to, to push ourselves and to set those, like, those goals farther and farther and farther. Uh, you also have, you know, social media is more prevalent than ever before. And I, I think it's great for a lot of reasons. I think it's also counterproductive for a lot of reasons. I think you see people out there doing 10 deals a month and you tell yourself, man, I'm only doing two deals a month, right? Yeah. But if you're two deals a month, only take 10 to 20 hours a week and, and you make $40,000 $40, a, a deal. I mean, ultimately, it, it, like you said, it, it just comes down to closer versus more, but the more is very tempting because you see other people doing it. You measure the gap. And uh, I think that's why people get addicted to doing that. You know, and we call it the comparison trap in the whale club, like the idea of getting caught playing someone else's game. And I think, you know, we, a lot of people and myself included, didn't take the time to clearly define exactly what I wanted. These are preferences. This isn't like a right or wrong answer. You know, some people have more of a preference towards building a massive business in order to make a massive impact on a lot of people's lives. That's a preference, right? Some people want to be able to live this nomad life and travel around the country and not have to wear a watch or worry about checking into different things. That's a completely different goal to solve. But, but what happens is we get caught in this. Yeah. But yeah, but look at this guy, look at this girl. Right. And everyone's got these these businesses, but you don't really understand what it is that they're trying to get closer to. Um, sometimes they don't also realize what they're trying to get closer to. They're also caught in that comparison trap. So where have you seen that show up? Oh yeah. It's, it's shown up a lot. I mean, one example is, uh, you know, it, it, we see it a lot in CG. So like, I, I have a lot of friends who, who carry an overhead in their business of, you know, a hundred thousand dollars a month. Some of them are up at $200,000 a month and they're, they're hitting a five X ROI on, on their marketing spend. Right. And that, that's phenomenal. That's absolutely phenomenal. So I went to our first CG conference back in May and I walked away going, I've got to increase my overhead. So I walked away and I, I increased my overhead by about, it was about $12,000 a month. That very first month, I felt such like an insecurity inside of me. And I was like, mm. it, it wasn't like a comfortable one. It wasn't like a pushing myself to grow. 
it was me feeling that I was out of alignment. I realized like that, that's not what I want, right? Like, okay, maybe I spend my extra $12,000 a month and maybe I do hit that 5X ROI. But if that's, if that's causing me to work more and that's causing me to miss my, my walks with my dog and my wife in the morning or, or my lunch with my wife or, or dinner or whatever it might be, um, maybe it's causing me stress. It's producing more deals than, than I can handle that I have the team for, right? Like, I, yeah, I realized that uh, it, it just wasn't a fit. So, you know, I ended up pulling the plug on that. I, I decreased my marketing spend to something I felt comfortable with. And, uh, you know, I just, it, it helped me kind of realize who I am, you know? And I don't mm -hmm. think there's anything wrong with that. I think you just need to ask yourself those important questions. What am I working toward? And, and what I, is what I'm doing getting me closer to that? Right. And there's just so many preferences, like you're touching on risk, uh, just risk tolerance in general. And as someone who came from the world of accounting, I'm sure you understand that better than most, <laughs> yeah. right? This yeah. tolerance for risk. Um, and so, you know, having that clear solvable problem, knowing where you're going, it helps you get closer without chasing more. That's the idea. But let's talk about, you know, because I, I think that that's pretty intuitive. A lot of people understand that, you know, mm -hmm. and as entrepreneurs, we do this goal setting at the beginning of the year. And we write down all these things that we want. And yeah, we, we I recognize that things are going to change over time. Totally fine. Right. We just need to we need to understand what our goals are. And that is fairly simple. Right. I mean, I shouldn't say simple, but it's like it it can be done. The real challenge becomes when you actually start engaging in business and then things pop up, right? Now you're in the game and all of a sudden you have an opportunity to make more money doing this. Or if you're like me, it's like someone approaches you and says, hey, let's start this other business. Yeah. And you're like, oh, that sounds like so much fun. I bet we can make a ton of money and I'd love to work with this person. Let's do it. Right. And so, you know, if you're like me, you just started accumulating all these obligations and now you're taking on all these different things. And, and, and that whole like solvable problem starts to fade a little bit. It gets fuzzier and fuzzier and fuzzier. And you're not, now you're not really getting closer. You're just chasing more. Has, have you experienced that before? Yeah. Yeah. Actually one of the most, uh, one of the biggest challenges I ran into this past year in 2022 came across a phenomenal mobile home park deal and it was seller financed. Uh, but he needed, he was re requiring $300,000 down. He had to pay off his existing note. And then he needed X amount for, you know, this, that, and the third, but that, that part's not super important, but he needed $300,000 down. This is a, this is like a 60 pad mobile home park um, with a phenomenal value add opportunity. So what I would have had to do, I, I I operate off of the philosophy that I don't put my money into my rentals or or my portfolio. I put it into the business. So anytime like I need to put money into a, a property, I, I typically borrow that money, whether that's refinancing it or going to get private capital. So in this case, I'm looking at raising three hundred thousand dollars for the down payment. Right, you've got closing costs, which are going to be another twenty thousand uh, dollars, and then for a sixty pad mobile home park, you're looking at a substantial amount of reserves. I mean probably need every bit of 150 to 200 grand. So I was essentially mentally budgeting, raising $600,000 on top of taking on the heavy lift of, of this value add. There's a lot of tenants that need to be evicted. There's a lot of mobile homes that are in need of rehab. We need to convert these from park-owned homes to tenant-owned homes. It was a lot, right? And at this time, I was focusing on, on revamping my business, dialing in the lead management process, making sure we're doing what we need to on acquisitions, 
adopting the ovation, stuff like that. My plate was just completely full. On top of that, I was getting married. Literally, the closing of this mobile home park was the week of my marriage. So this was probably one of the best deals I've I've ever come across. And I ultimately decided that I did not have the mental bandwidth, the time or the energy to be a proper steward of whoever's money I was going to be raising for this deal, nor would I be able to be a principal to, to operate the, the value add plan that needed to be implemented for this mobile home park. So I decided to wholesale the thing and, you know, I, I made a good fee on it, but that's one of those that like, I can easily look back and just say, what if like, you, you know, you sold the best deal you came across. It's a phenomenal investment, but ultimately I, I, I think it would have taken me farther away from, from what I'm trying to achieve. And, mm. you know, I have this success criteria. I have this solvable problem and the, the impetus for all that stuff really is my family. So if I'm taking this stuff on amidst my wedding and, and honeymoon and starting this new life together, it just, it wouldn't make any sense. Mm. I love that. It's such a good example because there's so many trade-offs other than money, right? Um, we use this acronym that we talk about in, in the whale club called timer. And I actually added an A at the beginning. So I call it a timer, but you know, the idea with this is to consider the other currencies that we trade. Of course, money is one, right? That's the M, but you have, you know, a timer stands for a attention, you know, so attention from your kids, attention from your wife, attention from your family, attention through social media, right? That can be measured. Um, time, you know, you have impact or the influence you're making on, let's say your team or your family or your friends or, or whoever. You have money, you have energy, right? I think I, I use this example a lot of time around a lot of times it's not that we necessarily want more time. I think we confuse, I want more time, like in the case of your wedding, right? It's not like you need a, a, a five-week wedding. It's right. that you want your energy to be present, right? During that. For a lot of us, you know, folks that have kids, it's not that they want like to spend all day with their kids. That's kind of what you actually hear, right? They're like, ah, COVID showed us that, right? It's not really that I want more time with my kids. It's that I want to be more present, more energy when I'm with them. Um, and then the last, you know, our reputation or relationships, right? And so we've got to consider trade-offs in these other areas of life because it's not just about money. And when you when you err on the side of more money, well, what are the number, what are the trade-offs that we're not considering here? Um, and I love that you do that so, so well, you're able to say, well, this mobile home park, although it would make a great addition to my portfolio, it doesn't fit with the preferences that I've laid out for myself. Yeah. If you take this to 10 people, they might be like, you're crazy. Why wouldn't you take that deal down? But that's the risk in seeking consensus from people who don't understand your preferences and what the problem you're actually trying to solve. Right. Yeah. You know, you know, what's funny is that was the biggest hurdle I had to overcome when selling this deal. Anyone I presented it to was like, I just don't get why you're selling it. <laughs> they, yeah. could, they, they couldn't understand. They couldn't understand. Yeah. Well, and it's just, I, 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 maybe we should talk about that for a second. Like the risk of seeking this consensus from somebody that doesn't really have all the information, you know, and at best they're going to, most people, the, the common denominator is usually money, right? Mm -hmm. They're like, yeah, but you could make more money if you did this. Why wouldn't you do that? Yeah. And, and it's not their fault. It's just, I think that a lot of times we're wired that way. Like our human brain is wired towards more. Um, and, and the, the 
you know, the, the most common currency that we all think about is money, you know, so what's your, what's your perspective on that idea of seeking consensus really about any decision in your business from someone who's at best going to give you generalized advice, right? I mean, our parents are guilty of that, right? They don't, although they, they have their preferences for us, right? They have what they want, you know, my son who did all these things. And then he became this, you know, experienced professional, you know, accountant, doctor, lawyer, engineer, whatever. They all kind of, a lot of them want that for us and they have their preferences. Um, but anyways, where, where else do you see that showing up? This idea of seeking consensus around what should I do in my business? Yeah, it, it's something I still struggle with all the time. You know, I talked about that example this past year where I increased my marketing budget. I didn't increase my marketing budget because it's what I thought was best for my business, right? I saw other people in my circle that were doing it and doing it with success. And I was like, well, if they're doing, they're having success with it, then like I need to adopt that. Like I've got to put it into my business. You know, if I, if I spend this additional 12 grand and, and it nets me 48, right? Like, like, why would I not do that? What I failed to ask myself was like, like, do I want that? Like, do I, do I want the associated, like you said, like, you know, the acronym, a timer, right? It's, that's something that, that needs to be factored into every single decision. So, uh, a lot of last year, even it, it's something I've, I've improved upon recently, but a lot of last year I fell into groupthink. I, I fell into consensus. And when I had a difficult, uh, situation present itself, I, I found myself going to people, Hey, you know, I'm having trouble with this employee. This is what's going on. Like, like, what do you think I should do? You know, we're, we're not making enough money. Uh, you know, our, our margins are pretty good, but we're not grossing enough. Right. So, so how do I gross more as opposed to looking inward and, and, trying to figure that problem out myself, I, I found myself going to others and, and seeing what they're doing and just trusting that what they're doing is going to work. Uh, so we see that a lot in CG. Um, you just see that a lot in life in general. Again, like on social media, it's easy to see other people crushing it. They, you need to do more and more and more. Um, but I tell you what, man, I, I think I, I recently, again, a lot of this is recent, right? I'd say within the last six months, I adopted a daily like a morning meditation, uh, morning journaling. And then I journal again in the evening. And that's given me so much clarity around yeah. what I want in life, what I need to center my goals around, what my business needs to look like. And ever since I started doing that, I've, I've, I've just had the clarity that I've never had before. Mm. Well, I'm so glad you say that because there's, there's like two, uh, I have a coach, his name's Dr. Jeff Spencer. He, he refers to like, uh, two sides of our brain, basically. You have, he calls it the human mindset and the champion's mind. And if you've ever read uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, Daniel Kahneman, he talks about the system one brain and the system two brain. So the idea is like the system one brain, the human mindset is our like old brain. That's the survival brain. And, and you know, we have all these instincts towards more because we needed them to survive for a long time, right? Like that's biology. It's, it was given to us. We didn't ask for it, but we have to reconcile with it. And so what happens is like, is the human, the human mindset eats first. It always eats first. And it's going to be there whether you like it or not. And so the, the people that have, that I've observed that have had success in their life, they have a strong, 
you know, operating, so we call it an operating system. Like you have a system of operating, right? It's your daily meditation. You have certain practices that you've put in place to keep your human mindset from reacting and making decisions based off of emotions, fear, like impulse a lot of times, right? Because again, the human mindset eats first. It's always going to eat first. And if you don't have a way to filter your decisions, the way to reflect and engage and a, and a system more or less to, to make these decisions, uh, more often than not, your reactions will take over and you'll just start doing things based off of impulse. And we know from experience that our impulses don't always serve us in the modern world in business, helping us get closer to what we want. You know, so I love that you, you have basically built your own operating system, right? You've got your way to filter your decisions, to help you get closer to things that you want. And it's a daily practice. You can't let the foot off the gas because again, the, the human the human mindset is always working. It's always there. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, another good example of it that I, that I just thought about is I actually netted more money in 2021 than I did in 2022. But in 2021, I was pretty much the only acquisitions guy. You know, we did like, I think it was 70 deals in 2021. I counted for 59 of those. Uh, you know, I was working every bit of at least 60 hours a week. I mean, 60 was probably a, a, a slow week for me. Um, and I was, I was, unhappier than I'd really, it brought me back to kind of like the, the accounting world. Um, you know, I, I realized at the end of 2020, 2021, I looked back, I was like, I've made more money this year than I've ever made before. Um, in a lot of other people's opinions, I'm extremely successful, but I'm not happy. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I'm out here, I I'm calling every single seller that, that enters our system. I'm locking up every single deal. I'm going on every single appointment. I'm selling all of our deals. I don't have an assistant. Like it was just crazy. So 2022 is when I switched the emphasis from being, you know, having a high paying job, which is, let's just call it what it was in 2021. It was a high paying job. Uh, 2022, I decided like, now it's time to build a business that suits my lifestyle. And I've still had a lot of bumps and bruises with that. But um, even though I netted less this year than I did in 2021, I'm so much more excited than I ever have been before. And it's because I'm finally aligned. Um, yeah. I'm just such a, you know, Paul, you used this example before, and it's it's something that sticks in my head all the time. When do you ever hop in the car, open up your GPS, you know, Apple Maps or whatever, and just like say like, let's head west, right? Yeah. Like without a destination, you, you have to enter an address. And it's the same thing in life. So um, today, as opposed to 2021, I have such a vivid vision as to what the future looks like and where I want to go, what that address is that I'm putting into Apple Maps. And uh you know, I can see the the route to get there, which is just super, super exciting. That is so cool. That, it starts with clarity, right? So let's talk, let's switch gears and let's talk strategy now. Because when you know where you're going now, we can start building in certainty. We can start working out the best, most efficient path to get there with the least amount of risk. And so one of the ways that we talk about this in order to visualize how we, we approach strategies is through this concept of the barbell. And for those who aren't familiar with this, it's a way to, to visualize how we want to approach risk, really, right? So if you picture a barbell, most of us have seen that. You don't load weight in the middle of the bar. It means we either want to be on one side of the barbell or the other. And so on one side, we talk about reliability, right? What is your 
we refer to this term called macro belief. Most of us are in real estate. We have a long-term macro belief in real estate. We know real estate to be a very reliable source, predictable. Of course, you know it's not a straight line up and to the right, but it is very predictable relative to the other assets that are there. So, you know, on one side, we want to have reliability. On the other side, we want to look for opportunities where we have asymmetry to the upside, where the upside is really big, but the downside is very low. And we can make these bets as if we're thinking about the barbell. So let, tell me a little bit about your barbell. And let's start by talking about the reliability side. You know, what does that look like for you and your business? For me and my business, that, that's my rentals, right? Th those are always going to be there. and. Uh... I felt like, so in Virginia, the, the price to rent ratio doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Meaning uh, for something that that rents out for $1,000 a month or, or whatever it might be, the price is so high that the, the cash flow is, is difficult to make sense of. So that's when I started marketing in central Arkansas, the, the Little Rock MSA. And what I found there was that the price to rent ratio was much more attractive, right? So like a deal there is almost like a 2% a deal, you know, 2% rule, meaning if the property rents out for $1,000 a month, we can pick it up for 20, put 30 into it, be all in at 50 and it rents out for a thousand. Like that's, that's what we're crazy. getting in. It's crazy. So that's why I started marketing there. And I figured maybe I forfeit appreciation by getting into Arkansas because the, you know, in central Arkansas, the properties simply don't appreciate, but I get the cash flow, which is conducive to the path that I'm trying to head on. Um, and then in Virginia, maybe the cash flow is a lot slimmer, but there, you know, and maybe there's a barbell within a barbell here, Paul, because uh, a lot of these rentals in Virginia, for example, the cash flow might be slimmer. It's only $200, $250 a month on average. Uh, but we we see way more appreciation here than we do in Arkansas. So I my like I said, my portfolio is kind of a mix of of the two markets there. Well, there's absolutely we you know, there it's fractal which means like, as you zoom in, there's barbells within inside of barbells within inside of barbells. And uh, I love that you mentioned that because I, I tend to agree. That's absolutely true. If you zoom in on real estate, on the reliable side of the barbell, well, some of them are going to be upside plays and some of them are going to be more reliable plays, right? The idea is we want to get stuff out of the middle, stuff that's like, it could go well, but it could also go really bad. And that's the type of bet that we want to either we want to either push it to reliability or we want to find ways to get more upside and reduce the downside. Um, and I love that you're. This is something I struggled with for a really long time, and it's classic human mindset stuff of trying to maximize for everything, like trying to do too many things all at once. And what I mean by that is, in your case, you are not. You're trying to optimize for cash flow. That's very different than trying to optimize for cash flow and for appreciation. You can't do both, right? But we want to, and we try to. And a lot of people are sitting here saying, yeah, but I want the best of both worlds. It's like, I get that. But you need to optimize for the most important thing right now. And so we talk about this in the Whale Club all the time, the idea that if you want passive income, there's going to be trade-offs to that. You're going to have to make certain trade-offs in order to, to optimize for that certain thing, but it's all a preference, right? And it doesn't mean that you can't do one after you've done the other, but I love that you optimize for the most important thing, which is your $20,000 a month in, in cash flow. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you've got, and, and 
again, let's talk about reliability in the sense that you're buying these houses with no money down. You're getting the terms that you need directly with the seller. You're not limited by some 10, you know, rental rule and Fannie Mae and all this stuff, right? You've found a strategy that fits exactly with what your solvable problem is. You're picking these things up with, like you said, no money down or none of your money down, probably in most cases. And you're turning that, turning that into cash flow. Is there anything else you've got on the reliable side that, that you would you know, claim to be highly reliable and predictable? No, I'd say that's it. Um, really just the, the rental portfolio is, is my reliable side of the barbell. And I mean, we could, we could dissect that, you know, I broke that into a barbell of Virginia versus Arkansas. I, there's also like different assets within my portfolio that have, uh, proven to be part of the, you know, in the middle of the barbell, right? Like I've got a six unit apartment building in, in Arkansas. That's, you know, I thought it was a great deal. It spits off great cash flow. It, I mean, that thing's been nothing but a nightmare, just poor tenant class, um, very high maintenance. And I found that the the downside to that is actually really big. Like, I think there's a lot more work there than I thought there was when I bought the thing. Right. Uh, so that's, that's something that valuable, super, super valuable lesson for me moving forward. Yeah. Well, the title of this show is called the investor frame. The reason I titled it that is because this is part of, uh, one of the tools that we talk about in the certainty operating system and, uh, get the book here. Dan's book, Rigging the Game. A lot of this stuff comes from this book. And the idea here is that, so the investor frame says, knowing what I know now, would I, would I choose to buy that rental property again? Would I choose to opt in to my current situation? You could look at this in terms of like, knowing what I know now, would I hire this employee again? Knowing what I know now, would I buy this rental? Knowing what I know now, would I, if I had, you know, if your business is worth a million dollars, let's say, and I handed you a million dollars, would you buy your business back? Because if not, then by staying in that investment, it's like continuing to opt in every single day. So this idea of the barbell and this concept of the investor frame is like, we should be always asking ourselves, well, yeah, I get it. When I bought this thing, I had the best of intentions. I thought it was going to be great. But six months later, a year later, all it is is just a bunch of headaches. There's all sorts of downside. The upside isn't really what I thought it was. So knowing what I know now, would I still choose to buy that investment property? The answer is no. Then I ask myself, okay, well, what needs to change in order to make that so? If I can't make that change, then what we say is recapture and reallocate those resources. Get your money out of it. Put it towards something that actually helps you get closer to what you want because we don't load weight in the middle of the bar. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then so applying that into, into practical matters, right? Um, gonna sell it. Uh, and then moving forward, like like I, I was one of those people that, you know, I, I've bought a lot of properties. I've wholesaled a ton. I've, I've flipped some um, and, and, you know, I just have a lot. So I've, I've been through this stuff. I figured if I can walk it, you know, I know the roof looks good. The mechanicals are good. The windows are good. Uh, you know, I see the financials, right? Like, like we're fine. What I didn't realize is I think I need to get an inspection done on every single one of these things. That was a, a corner that I was cutting for absolutely no reason at all. So I don't buy properties anymore without getting like an actual inspection done. I don't, I don't ask the seller to make the repairs or anything like that, but that's information that I need to have moving forward. You know, if I get a $50,000 potential plumbing bill that comes up on the six unit apartment building, like that's something I want to know with my eyes open going into it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, 
comes with single families too. I, you know, I had a really tough lesson with a house built in 1920. I'll never buy a house built before 1950 again. I don't buy two bedrooms. I buy three bedrooms or more. I don't flip houses with one bathroom. I flip houses with two bathrooms or more. Right. Uh, unfortunately, I took some bumps and bruises to learn those lessons. But to your point, like, like now we have this criteria that we can move forward with and we don't have to face those again, hopefully. Yeah. I mean, you're, because you're an accountant, I'm sure you like, you did all this with the big four, right? You have these internal controls, these, <laughs> what we call preventive controls. It's like, it's the difference between saying, uh, well, the difference between preventive and detective is like saying, here's what we're going to do to prevent bad things from happening. And then detective would be like, here's what we're going to do to detect when something bad has happened so that we can make a change. Well, obviously, it's better to prevent it in the first place, you know, and a lot of times it takes us getting our teeth kicked in to say, OK, here's the rule that we're not going to we're not going to do this anymore. Right. We're going to make this rule, this preventive control. And, you know, I love that. Again, all this stuff is like natural. You start to figure it out as you do more and more deals and you get better in business. But it sure would be helpful if someone like, <laughs> you know, could make us aware of this on the front end. Like, hey, here's the rules that you should probably set in place to not make these mistakes. Of course, we don't we don't have that. So we have to sort of engage and make these rules as we go. But, you know, that's a sign of, in my, my opinion, a sign of experience as someone who says, well, here's the things that we're not going to do versus the person, you know, the inexperienced person who's like, yeah, but we could make so much money if we did this. Yeah, but you're just looking at the upside. You're not considering the downside. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's hard to see the downside until you've been through it. Like sometimes it really is, right? Um, you know, for example, like you this this was me getting caught up in in group consensus thinking. Like, like you and I were talking about earlier, this six-unit apartment building. Everyone's buying apartments right now. This thing is a phenomenal cap rate, like spits off great cash flow. Like, I've got to buy this thing. But it didn't factor in is like. I mean, what happens when you're getting calls from the tenants daily? What happens when, you know, your property manager is blowing you up with emails about all these different repairs that need to be done? Uh, you know, I, I'd say I bought the thing really as a, as a product of me just trying to keep up with the Joneses, uh, just getting caught up with, with the hype of everybody else buying apartment buildings, honestly. Yeah. So then what is your upside play? What's your What's your play that's like, it doesn't need to go well. We don't need it. But if it does, that's great. And we can use it to, to really collapse the time it's going to take for you to get what you actually want, right? Uh, what does that look like for you? For me, that's flipping, flipping houses. Uh, I still don't do that at a large scale and I really don't intend to. Uh, I don't, I don't want to create a second job. But what I have set up is, um, you know, again, I, I have this criteria in, in most of almost every aspect of my life. So I'm not going to take on a, and some people listening are going to laugh at this, but I won't take on a flip that requires more than $40,000 worth of work. Um, I, I, I just won't. Like if, if there's a lot of foundational work that needs to be done, I'm not going to touch it. Um, if the ARV is over after repair value, if that's over $350,000, I'm not going to take it on. Right. And so my, my thinking behind this is, well, if I can keep my rehab estimate and actual rehab uh, $40,000 or below, I can expedite the rehab, meaning like those are very simple jobs that I can get done within three weeks, three weeks time. Very simply, if I can keep the ARV below 350, which is typically your first time home buyer range, those products are still in high demand as long as you deliver a good product. You put out a good rehab at an affordable price point, 
it's probably going to sell. So now our carrying costs are less of a concern. The unknowns when it comes to the rehab are less of a concern. And then now I'm getting inspections done on everything I'm buying, right? So very mm-hmm. rarely are there things that I haven't seen already before, you know, getting into it. Uh, but the upside is there. So previously, uh, before I was equipped, you know, I, I have a phenomenal contractor now. But before that, I, I wasn't equipped to take these down. So I would typically wholesale them. And, you know, it'd make like a, a decent wholesale fee or whatever. But now by being, being able to take those down, and especially the ones that fit the, the buy box that I mentioned, I'm able to capture much larger profits on those. And uh, I didn't really start doing that until this past year. And it helped us out a ton, big yeah. time. It's just a case in point for instead of because you're an accountant, you probably do this all very naturally. Like you were trained classically and this is how accountants think. I know that because my partner, Dan, who told me all this, he's an accountant and he runs one of the top accounting firms in the, in the nation. And what he tells me is if you just focus on eliminating downside as much as possible, all you're left with is upside, right? And the mistake that a lot of entrepreneurs make is yeah, but I could make more money if I flipped a house that was, you know, ARV of 500K. And yeah, I could, you know, I know it's it's a $60,000 rehab, but we can make more money if we did this. It's like, yeah, but you're you're considering the upside, but you're not considering the downside. And so what you've done is you said, here's my parameters. I'm not going to flip a house that needs more than $40,000 worth of work. Case in point, limiting the downside. I'm not going to flip a house that has an ARV above a certain price point because uh, there's more volatility or, or whatever your reasons are. Case in point, limiting the downside, right? So this is such a, it's a hack. It's a hack. Define the things that you're not willing to do. Define the ways that you're going to reduce downside in your operation. That's what we mean when we say upside. I think a lot of people get confused because I say barbells, you got reliability on one side and upside on the other, but it's not just upside. What I mean is asymmetry to the upside, meaning the upside's big, but the downside's low. Most people forget that point. And I say, most people, I'm like talking to myself here, Paul, (laughs) right? Stop chasing upside and start focusing on ways to prevent losing It's not quite as sexy. It's not quite as fun, but it's the definition of financial certainty and how you, you know, pull risk off the table in these deals is by defining what you won't do up front. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. Powerful stuff, man. All right. So what is, you know, I say the greatest lesson doesn't have to be your greatest lesson. It could be your most memorable or recent lesson that you've learned, but what's a lesson that you'd like to leave the listeners with in terms of uh, business, entrepreneurship? Uh, what is that? What would you like to leave the listeners with? For me, it was extreme ownership. I think it's really easy to point fingers in a lot of different aspects of the business. Um, you know, just I'll give a couple examples recently that for me have exponentially improved the trajectory of my business. So, um, I, I implemented a lead management process in my in my business this year. And what it started with is, well, my lead managers weren't making enough phone calls. And the reason I knew that is because I was talking to other operators and their people were making 100, 150 calls a day. And my guys were only making like 40 to 50, right? And it would have been easy for me to take a look at them and say, you're just not doing enough. You're not working hard enough. How are you spending your time? I don't understand. Instead, ask myself, well, what can I do better? Like, what, what does our phone system look like? Like, can we use a more optimized phone system? You know, essentially what I did there, right, was 
I spent two days uh, working as a lead manager and I measured mm -hmm. my results. And that allowed me to find the inefficiencies in our process. Paul, our lead managers today average, average 300 calls a day, right? Wow. So then we got up to 300 calls a day and now our connection rate with prospects dropped to about 15%. And, you know, I was like, well, what are you guys just, it, it would have been easy for me to ask, like, are you guys just not calling the right people? Like, I don't understand. Like, I don't get why people aren't picking up the phone, like, you know, and kind of hang my head. Uh, what we ended up doing was figuring out like how to get more phone numbers, how to clean those phone numbers, how to register the phone numbers so that we don't have to worry about getting marked as spam or anything like that, right? Our connection rate now is up to 35% across the board. Wow. So out of every 100 calls, 35 people are answering them. Uh, and that alone, like, like those changes for our business has quadrupled the number of appointments that we get, which has increased the number of contracts and in, increased the number of deals. Um, another big one was, you know, I had an acquisitions manager that simply wasn't putting in the work. You know, he was, I think he was averaging three calls a day or something. And I think it's super, super simple for me to say, well, you know, it's his fault. He wasn't working hard enough. Didn't want it. Right. That experience, I think I've learned more in, in this relationship with my acquisition manager than I have in any other part of my business. So I realized did I set an expectation with him up front? The answer was no. And I, I'm actually kind of embarrassed to admit this. Didn't set any expectation. Well, what KPIs did he have to hit? I didn't set any for him. I didn't set any expectations. I didn't set any KPIs. I didn't have him come up with his own KPIs, author them. I didn't have any accountability in place. Did we have a weekly check-in or a daily check-in? Um, anything like if he didn't hit those KPIs, what happens? There was none of that, right? Yeah. What I found was that I was placing trust in other people to work as hard as I would to do the same thing I would, which is not a logical thing to do. It's just not. So now lesson learned, we have KPIs in place, right? I just onboarded a new acquisition guy. Here are the daily numbers we need to hit. Here are the weekly numbers we need to hit. Here are the monthly numbers we need to hit. And all those numbers and all those KPIs are based on his goals. They're not based on mine, right? So when I had the onboarding interview with him, the whole thing was about his why. It was about what he's trying to accomplish and what I can do to get him there. And if you want to hit these goals, these are what the numbers break down to. Then the next question comes, and I, I didn't do this with my other guy, but I did it with this one. If you, you know, when the inevitable bad week or bad month or bad day happens and, and we miss the numbers, how would you like me to hold you accountable? You right? sound like Ren Bartlett. That's who I got it from. Yeah. It's literally directly from Ren. <laughs> but dude, I mean, it's, it's, it's made a humongous difference and it makes so much sense. So now I have a daily huddle with this guy and it says, okay, did you hit your metrics? Great. If you didn't, what's going on? How can we improve? How is today going to be different from yesterday? And uh, I don't think I would have, I don't think I would have achieved any of that improved at all. If I, if I didn't look inward and ask how I could have been better. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, I couldn't agree more with that. And it's just a case in point again, for defining the rules up front and our bias towards, I mean, this shows up for me everywhere in business. You know, you think the solvable problem, the idea around the solvable problem is fractal as well as you zoom in with your employees like did you define up front what their solvable problem is because if you haven't that's where you've got to start right we've yeah. got to start there and then we've got to define the rules we're willing to play by 
the, the things that we're, we're not willing to do, the things that we are willing to do, define what it's going to take to get there. In this case, it was setting KPIs. And, and again, it, it's, it doesn't matter what area of your business is uh, or, or, or your life or your investments for that matter. This process can be applied to everything, whether it's an employee, you know, extreme ownership, right? Is basically just saying, have you done this process? Have you defined what success looks like? Have you defined the actions that need to take place? Or did you just like skip all that, hire someone and say, yeah, go, go get me the results that I'm expecting. Yeah, uh, man, I, I I'm resonating with that deeply. And I try to think daily, like, where am I violating this? Cause I, I guarantee you I'm violating it in one way or another right now. And I just don't even realize it. And I think there's a power in a community of people who can point that stuff out. Hey, I don't mean to be like, you know, a pain in your ass here, but you said you wanted this, but this is what I'm seeing, right? What are we going to do about that? You yeah. know, and, and, and we all need those people to point that out in our life, whether it's, you know, managing employees or having accountability around, hey, I know you said this was your solvable problem, but here's what I'm seeing you taking action on. And it doesn't seem like that's actually getting you closer to the things that you want. Could it be that you're just reacting based on impulse? Crap, maybe I am, right? So, you know, I, I try to surround myself with people who are willing to poke those sore spots and poke out you know, those, those situations where you might be out of alignment between what you say and what you're actually doing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I tell you what, man, that, that colleague or, or accountability partner, whatever you want to call it would have saved me a lot of time and sleepless nights back uh, when I was contemplating that decision for the mobile home park. Right. I, I think the, I think having somebody else sit there and just ask me like Tyler would taking down this mobile home park and keeping it, get you closer to your success criteria. Clear answer is no, right? But I spent so much time uh, contemplating, you know, going back and forth, trying to figure out how to keep the thing, right? It, it would have saved me so much time, but sorry. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, we all make mistakes and it's just part of part of business and part of life, right? It's moving forward. So um, thank you so much, man, for coming in. Lastly, I want to leave the listeners with this. You know, I, I, I challenge everybody to adopt the investor frame. So knowing what you know now, what Tyler just shared and, and the conversation that we've had, knowing what you know now, what changes do you need to make in your business? What needs to, to happen so that you can get closer to the things that you want in life without chasing more and more? Um, this is the question that we that we should all be asking ourselves. So um, Tyler, thanks for coming in, man. It's just a pleasure to hear your story. I'm looking forward to hanging out with you here in Clearwater in a couple of weeks um, and seeing what you have to present because every time you present, it's, it's always... Uh, an amazing amount of, of value being given. So likewise. And, and thanks, Paul, man, this was a blast. Appreciate you having me on here and uh, looking forward to, to clear water. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks everybody for tuning in and uh, go check out the full episode. It'll be out here soon on Apple and Spotify, and we'll see you on the next episode.